Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Wherever you're listening today, your, your day is going very well. Dr. Woodward is out of town, so I'm going to be doing this segment. Um, and I have some very exciting things to talk about, something I, uh, I enjoy talking about. But before we do that, I wanted to mention that the C.S. Lewis Society has an event coming up. Uh, they have a very, uh, very special person coming into town to speak named Douglas Axe. Uh, he is the author of the book Undeniable. That is a huge book, a very popular book. Uh, if you walk into a Barnes & Noble, just about any bookstore, you will see that book on the shelf. So Douglas Axe is going to be here in the Tampa Bay area uh, April 6th and April 7th. So Saturday from 4 to 8 p.m., he's going to be at uh, Bayside Community Church in Tampa with Dr. Woodward. They're going to do a seminar together one after another. Uh, There's going to be a break for dinner in the middle of that, and I believe they're going to have food trucks and, and stuff like that there where you can buy food. Uh, and then Sunday morning at 10 and 11 a.m., he's going to be there as well. Uh, that evening, Sunday evening, he's going to go to Sarasota Baptist Church uh, Sunday at, I believe it's 6 p.m. So if you know anybody in your congregation, anybody who's into apologetics, or if they're not into apologetics, that's an even better reason to get them there. So they will be into apologetics, uh, youth groups, anybody you want to bring, we highly suggest you bring them out. This is going to be an awesome event. Um, it's not going to be one you want to miss. I'll be there. Dr. Woodward will be there. Uh, so we hope to see you there. And what we want to talk about today is progressive revelation in terms of messianic prophecies. <clears throat> So we want to talk about, it's exactly what it sounds like. We want to talk about how uh, God has progressively revealed to us who the Messiah would be. He progressively revealed to his people one thing at a time. It built and it built bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, And we're going to see how that happens through scripture. It's amazing. So the first messianic prophecy in the entire Bible is Genesis 3.15. Now, if you have a Bible with you and you're listening, I... I highly encourage that you uh, follow along here. Maybe highlight these verses, write them down. If you're driving, I highly encourage you don't follow along um, in your Bible because that's not safe. But the first prophecy is Genesis 3.15. And this is where his people are told that the serpent struck would strike his heel, but he would crush his head. And he would come from the seed of a woman. So you see this broad statement in the Bible. You're like, what does this mean? Back then, I mean, they didn't... They would have had no idea. Okay, it's, it looks like maybe some sort of beginning to a redemption story. And, and you know, they, they, would have, they would have pondered at this because this is a very, very broad prophecy at that point of time. This mysterious figure now, we have two clues. He would come from the seed of a woman and there would be some sort of event where he would have his heel struck. We know that the serpent was in the garden. The serpent would strike his heel, but then he would crush the serpent's head. So this is some sort of prophecy of victory coming. And that's very exciting uh, considering that Genesis chapter 3.15 follows the fall directly, the fall of man, uh, where Adam and Eve had sinned and disobeyed God and eaten from the tree that they were not supposed to eat from. 
And that, of course, brought sin onto the whole world, which is why uh, me and you and anybody who has ever lived is in desperate need of salvation. We're in desperate need of redemption, being redeemed. And there's only one person who could do it, uh, Jesus Christ. And we're going to build and build and build and see how he fits exactly this messianic scheme that goes through Scripture, that he fulfills every prophecy and more. So Genesis 3.15 is that first prophecy. He would come from the seed of a woman, and he's going to do something victorious. He's going to do something great. Now we get on a little later uh, to Genesis 49.10. Bear in mind that at this point, they did not have uh, the temple set up, Solomon's temple. They did not have the second temple either. They didn't, you know, they didn't have that yet. But in Genesis 49.10, we see, we see another interesting passage that the scepter, he would not come until the scepter departed from Judah. So when did the scepter depart from Judah? Or when would it? Well, it would be at 70 AD, long, long time from this uh, event right here. But it would be in 70 AD when uh, the second temple was destroyed by Rome. The scepter had departed from Judah. And this is a very, very important messianic prophecy that I don't think is used enough. It's not, it's not talked about enough. But this prophecy really points to Jesus Christ as our Savior, as the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Because it says that he would have to come before 70 AD. So a Messiah, another guy can't just come and claim to be the Messiah. He would have had to come in that time that Jesus came. So we have, of course, Jesus would be from the seed of the woman. He would do something victorious, which he did at the cross, where he died on the cross and he defeated death. Uh, Certainly his heel was struck. He was crucified. He was beaten. But he overcame death and he destroyed sin for anybody who's willing uh, to repent and give their life to him. So we have he would now come before 70 AD. We have when he would come. Now we get to Isaiah 7.14. It starts to get a little more detailed here. The walls start closing in more and more and more. Um, and now we're specifically pointing even closer to one person. Isaiah seven fourteen says that he would come from a virgin. Now, some people will try to argue that, oh, well, he's just, he's just saying that a virgin would have a baby. That's all. No, 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 no. He, he, they're not saying a virgin would get together with a man and, and, and then they would go on and get pregnant and have a baby. There's nothing unusual about that. That would not be any sort of prophecy. That wouldn't be worth mentioning. That happens a million times a day. Don't quote me on that, but it happens all the time. Um, women get pregnant when they have sex. What this is saying in Isaiah 7.14 is that a virgin would give birth. The Messiah would be from a virgin who, of course, was the Virgin Mary. So we have that he would come from seven, before 70 AD. He would be born of a virgin. And after Isaiah 7.14, we get to another very interesting passage just a couple chapters later. This is Isaiah 9.6. And Isaiah 9, 6 says that he would be called Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, uh, Prince of Peace, and Everlasting Father. So he would not just be a person. We saw earlier in Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah would come from the seed of a woman. But now we're seeing that he wouldn't just be a human being. He would be human, but now it's saying that he's going to be called Mighty God. So this, this begins getting even more confusing. You know, I'm grateful that we live in a time where we can look back at this stuff and say, wow, now it all makes sense because we can see the whole picture. I mean, imagine that they're starting to put these prophecies together. And if they're doing it right, they're going to be sitting there thinking, man, there's a man God coming to redeem us. And he's coming at a certain time. That's what they have so far. There's a man God coming to redeem us. And many of our Jewish friends today still, they believe that the Messiah coming would just be a man. 
He's just going to be another prophet. But we need to point them to Isaiah 9, 6. And we need to tell them, look, this your prophecy, the, the Tanakh here, the Old Testament, that we both agree on, that we both love and read and, and believe is inspired, the inspired word of God. This, this passage says that the Messiah would be called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. He wouldn't just be a man. And, you know, as we go on here, uh, before I go on to the next passage, it's a very interesting one. Uh, but a great question, if you do have Jewish friends or family, uh, which I do, and I love them, a great question to ask them would be, what are you expecting the Messiah to do that Jesus Christ did not do? So what are you expecting the coming Messiah to come and do that Christ didn't already do and fulfill? You know, and, and sometimes they'll, they'll sit there and have nothing to say. And sometimes uh, I've, I've heard this response. Sometimes they'll say, well, he was supposed to come and make the world a better place. You know, so we, we have to point them to the fact that Christ did something so much bigger than they imagined, than the Jewish people had imagined at the time. He didn't just come to overthrow the government. He didn't just come to make our lives better. He, he, he did that, sure, but he came and he opened up heaven. He died and overcame sin. He defeated death. Um, Paul in Corinthians fifteen fifty five he quotes uh, Hosea thirteen fourteen where it says, Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? And then he goes on and he quotes Isaiah 25, 8, where he says death would be swallowed up. It has been swallowed up. It's defeated. You know, he did something so much greater than anyone had imagined. And we need to be able to point in a loving way uh, to these passages. Remember, 1 Peter 3.15 says to do everything with gentleness and respect. Okay, so we can't just point and tell people they're wrong. We have to do it lovingly, gently, and respectfully if we want them to know the Savior uh, who we know. So that's Isaiah 9, 6. He would be called Wonderful God. He wouldn't just be a prophet or a man. Um, it starts getting a little more detailed now, a little more interesting. Um, Isaiah 35, 6, it says that the lame would leap like deer, the blind would see, the deaf would hear, uh, the mute would, would sing with joy. And, you know, that's interesting because we know Jesus did all that. We see all through the four Gospels these healings that took place. And then, of course, the apostles under the authority of Christ went on to heal and to raise from the dead. Uh, they, they, they healed lepers. They made people who could never walk in their whole life stand up and leap for joy. These things happened. And what's very interesting is that when John the Baptist was in prison, you know, I'm, I'm sure he had all kinds of thoughts sitting in prison awaiting the day he's probably going to be killed. And, you know, he sends his followers to, to Jesus one last time. He says, listen, can you just can you just ask this guy, make sure he is the Messiah? You know, he's having second thoughts. And, and you know, what does Jesus tell them? He tells him that, that Isaiah 45, basically that Isaiah 45, I'm sorry, 35, 6 has been fulfilled, that Jesus has done these things. And when John the Baptist heard that, his ears must have perked up. He must have been reassured and said, oh, that's right. That's right. He did do that. Um, and, and John the Baptist must have been very familiar with the book of Isaiah because Isaiah 40 is where it says the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It describes John the Baptist who would clear the way, uh, clear the path for the Messiah to come, which he had done. So that must have been very comforting to hear. But the Messiah would heal people. That's what we see here. So he, he would heal people and he would do these things because this, this would show his badge of authority. And it's kind of like a, a, a two-sided thing here because while he's showing his badge and saying, listen, this is how you know that I am the promised Messiah. I'm fulfilling these things so that you know that I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. And then at the same time, he's a compassionate God. He's a loving God. 
He didn't come say, you know, all right, I'm going to walk up and I'm going to cut all these people's heads off and then you're going to know. No, no, no. He didn't do that. He said, I'm going to heal these people. I'm going to love these people. I'm going to raise these people from the dead. I'm going to make these people who have never spoke a word in their life. They're going to be able to talk now. You know, he did loving, compassionate things uh, in order to fulfill uh, the prophecies and the promises of the Messiah, which is such an amazing thing. So we go on to Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53 was a huge, a huge difference from what anybody would have expected at that time. Because Isaiah 53, if you're not familiar with it, read it, please. It's the most beautiful picture of the gospel in the entire Old Testament. If you haven't read that, you need to. But Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. That Jesus Christ, the Messiah coming, would suffer for us. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And that word pierced shows up quite a few times, uh, but this is one of those times he would be pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced on the cross. He had nails through his hands and feet, and he was pierced in his side uh, with a spear to assure that the, the soldiers that he was dead. So he would be pierced for our transgressions. Um, he would be crushed for our iniquities. Um, it goes on and it says that he would be led to the uh, slaughter as a lamb is led to the slaughter, as a sheep that before shears is silent. He would open not his mouth. He would be cut off from his people, you know, and, and it goes on and said that he, he would be with a rich man in his death. Okay, so he would be with a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea was the rich man who took him down from the cross and placed him in his tomb alongside uh, uh, Nicodemus is what the book of John tells us. And I'm not going to spend too much time on Isaiah 53 because um, Dr. Woodward exposited Isaiah 53 on an episode just a few weeks ago. You can find that. If you, if you follow our podcast uh, from apologetics.org, it's apologetics.org, you can find our podcast, Isaiah 53, uh, Dr. Woodward just went straight through it, it was amazing, he had a title for every section, so I would highly, highly encourage you, check that out. But Isaiah 53 highlights the fact that the Messiah would be a suffering servant, so he wasn't just going to come and be a king who overthrew the world and, and took over the government and gave everybody what they wanted. That's not what the Messiah would be. He would suffer for us, for our sins. And that's the only way. He would be the perfect sacrifice, allowing us to enter God's uh, heaven for eternity and to be with him forever. So Isaiah 53, we go on next and we, we start to see, okay, this is the place he's going to come from. Micah 5, 2 says he would be born in Bethlehem. And it also says that he would be from antiquity. So again, along with Isaiah 9, 6, we see that the Messiah would be from antiquity. Okay, so he's, he's not just going to be another man. Again, he's not just going to be another man or prophet who is born into the world. He's going to be from antiquity. He's going to be everlasting. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 92 says God is from eternity to eternity. He always is. He's the great I am. That's who the Messiah would be. He would be from antiquity. He would be mighty God. And he would be born in Bethlehem. Now, let me remind you that at this time, there were probably, uh, historians would say, less than a thousand people living in Bethlehem at this time. So the Messiah at the time of Jesus, I'm sorry. So the Messiah would come from a town with a population of less than a thousand people. Okay, there are churches all over the country with, with populations much larger than a thousand people. He would come from a town that small. You know, so we're... we're we're shrinking down the odds more and more and more and pointing at Jesus Christ as our Messiah. And we need to share this with the Jewish people and the people who don't know 
the Christ as the Messiah, who don't share the joy that we that we have and share with each other. We need to point this to them because he came from a town so small, such a specific place. So we have now uh, that he would come from the seed of the woman. He would be God. He would come before 70 AD. He would suffer for us. He would die for us. He would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement that brought us peace would be upon him. Okay, we have that. He would heal people. He would heal the sick. He would raise the dead. He would, he would make blind people see. He would make deaf people hear. He would make lame people leap for joy. We saw that. We saw that in John the Baptist, uh, to his response to John the Baptist. We see it throughout the Gospels. We now see that he would be born in Bethlehem. Um, just real quick, Zechariah 12.1, that's another passage that said he would be pierced. Okay, so that's another time we see that word pierced show up. And that's very interesting. Because, of course, we know Jesus was crucified. He was pierced. But we have to bear in mind that these passages were written hundreds of years uh, before Romans perfected crucifixion, before they used that as a form of murder and punishment. So in Isaiah 53, that was written seven, 800 years before the Romans used crucifixion. So that's just an amazing prophecy. So that's Zechariah 12.1. We have Hosea 12.1. I'm sorry, Hosea 11.1, that he would come out of Egypt. So remember that the, the family, uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they fled to Egypt in fear of being murdered. The angel warned them to flee to Egypt, and then they came out of Egypt. So my son would come out of Egypt, and that's what we see. We see that Jesus had come out of Egypt. Um, and and there, there are tons of, of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, too many to go over today. That's, I can promise you, and I highly encourage you do your own research. But there's one more I wanted to focus on, um, and this is Psalm chapter 22. This is an amazing psalm. If you haven't read this one, you need to, because this is just literally a chapter of messianic prophecies. It goes alongside Isaiah 53 very well. Uh, but Psalm 22, 1, he opens the passage by saying, uh, opens the chapter by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if that sounds familiar, it's because that's what Jesus said on the cross. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we know that God didn't forsake him because at the end of this chapter, it says that he did not turn his face from him. That's what we're told in, in Psalm 22. But as Jesus cried out to God, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jewish people would do this in their culture, this would call to mind a whole psalm. You know, it's, it's kind of like if somebody were to say a, a song lyric and all of a sudden the whole song comes to mind. This is what they would do with these psalms. And with in scripture passages, they would say a line and it would call the whole chapter to mind. So what we're meant to do here is we're meant to look at the whole chapter. Jesus is telling us, look at Psalm 22, you're going to see. So it goes on. And if we look at Psalm 2, this is just filled with messianic prophecies. It says, but I am a war, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Okay, so they're saying that they're going to hurl insults. They're going to mock him. They're going to shake their heads. And that's what they said. Remember, they said, hey, you know, if he's, he's so holy, have the angels. He'll just call the angels to come carry him down from the cross. God will save him. You know, they're almost saying word for word what Psalm 22 says here. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashans encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my, bo all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Okay, so he's describing the scene here that would happen at the crucifixion. Um, it's, it's, of course, what's happening to David, but it's fulfilled through what would happen at the crucifixion. And this passage goes on. Um, this, this part, this part is really incredible. Um, he says, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. All you fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. And we have to remember Christ came first and foremost to restore God's glory. It's not all about us. He came and he saved us and he restored us and he redeemed us. And we see that picture throughout the whole scripture. But first and foremost, it's about God's glory. And that's what our lives need to be around uh, as well. That's what our lives need to be based on is his glory and nothing, nothing more, nothing less. Um, so he also tells us in this same passage that he would be pierced. So we see that again uh, right here in verse... 17, 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. And listen to this part. It says, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And we remember that they did that. They cast lots for Jesus' clothes when he was crucified. Um, And this is just such an amazing prophecy because Jesus is literally calling this out on the cross. And we get to look back and and not only do we see a broad messianic prophecy, but we would see what would happen at the cross itself. We saw what Jesus was going through right at that time by reading Psalm 22 that was written such a long time before he was crucified, before there even was crucifixion. We see that they would cast lots for his clothing. He would be pierced. We see that again along with um, Isaiah 53 and uh, Zechariah 12.1, that he would be pierced, he would be crucified. Uh, we see that he would suffer. Psalm 22, as I said, along with Psalm, uh, Isaiah 53, points to the suffering that the Messiah would face for us, for me and you, and for our sin. And it was the only way our sin could be forgiven. So we need to point these passages. If we put all these together, this is, what do we only go over probably 11 or 12 of them? There are tons of messianic prophecies um, in the Old Testament of the Bible. And we need to point to these, especially with the Jewish people, uh, because they know this is what they would have been expecting. This is why these prophecies are written, so that God's people could see them and know who the Messiah was and know know when he was coming, where he would come, what he would do when he came, who he would be. And the most incredible thing, I think, about this whole whole picture of the Messiah coming is that he would be God and man. I mean, this must have just blown their mind at the time. He would be fully God and he would be fully man. That's never been heard of outside of legends, outside of myths and demigods. And But it, Jesus would be something so much greater than that. He wouldn't be that. He would be the one true God that Israel worships. He would be the one God here in human flesh to dwell among his people, to be with his people, to know his people, and to die for his people, to suffer and die for his people. And I think that's something we can take for granted if we don't stop and think about, you know, what Christ actually did, what he had to do in order to save us, that he had to come down and he had to take our place on the cross. He had to take our place in in punishment for death. He lived the life that we should have lived, and for it, he died the death that we should have died. And we need to, we need to tell that message to everybody. You know, don't just listen to this podcast. Don't just, don't just talk about it in Christian circles. We need that. 
but we need to get out. We need to tell people these things. We need to show people uh, these prophecies, and we need to show people the way um, that God had taken these individual things, all these things, where he would come from, who he would be, what he would do, and he just showed the, the Jewish people, and he shows us today. We can look back at the Old and New Testament and put these together, um, and we see a lot of this in the book of Hebrews. We see the book of Hebrews bridging the Old and the New Testament and explaining how we're supposed to look now at the Tanakh, at the Old Testament, in a Christ-centered way. So please look at the Bible in a Christ-centered way and encourage other people to do the same. Let them know that they can have an eternity in Jesus Christ and nobody else. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one God of Israel who we can cry out to for salvation. Uh, Thanks for listening. I hope to see you back here next week, and I hope you have a blessed night. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.